Poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are. Had my sweet Harry had but half their The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. You're listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and today we're looking at gender and the battle between the sexes in Shakespeare's works with Jamie Ake. Jamie is an assistant dean and senior lecturer in women, gender, and sexuality studies and the interdisciplinary project in the humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. And she says that questions about gender were quite prominent in England in the early modern period, both in the larger society and in theater itself. So on one hand, you have Queen Elizabeth on the throne, which is creating all kinds of anxieties about succession and, you know, what does it mean to have a virgin queen in charge of a very patriarchal society and trying to figure out how to negotiate female power with ultimately a very dominant ideology of men are in charge, right? And in the theater, England was unique in its insistence that female parts be played by adolescent boys or apprentices. And we tend to, I think, you know, when I was in high school, it's like, well, that's just the way it was. (laughs) But it wasn't that way in Spain, you know, and it wasn't that way in France. So we have to ask those questions about what was going on in England at the time that would make it so anxiety-producing to have actual women playing women, so much so that that was worse than boys playing women's parts and behaving in ways that women are supposed to behave on stage. So what does it mean to talk about imagining, say, female agency, female eroticism, when there are in fact no female bodies up there? What does it mean? (laughs) And it's too easy, I think, to say, well, it's a male writer, and so we can't take any of this seriously, or it's all somehow parody. Shakespeare seems to be somebody who's taking a lot of these dynamics incredibly seriously from different perspectives, and how do you do that on this very weird stage of cross-dressing? And then, of course, within the plays, how many times do you see the girls playing the boys? (laughs) So you have the male actors playing the female characters who then dress as boys or young men and, you know, go off into a forest and pair up nicely by the end sort of what does it mean about the instability of gender as a category. Aside from the fluidity of gender on the stage, Shakespeare also takes on questions of power, virtue, and gender stereotypes within the English patriarchy in some of his plays. One of the most famous examples of this battle between the sexes is, of course, The Taming of the Shrew in which we see his classic couple of potential lovers where the man and woman bicker more than anything else, matching each other wit for wit. If you're unfamiliar with the plot, very basically, a man named Petruchio is challenged with taming the famously headstrong and, quote, shrewish Catherine so that other suitors may court her younger, beautiful sister, Bianca, who may only marry once her older sister has done so. 
Professor Ake explains how one of Shakespeare's original and rather violent source texts for the play is subverted in his own rendition. There's the source story for one of them, for Taming, is a story where a husband, to punish his wife, actually puts her inside a horse's skin and beats her. This is the stuff of farce. And that is what's going to tame her. So it's this sort of literal physical beating. And it works. So she has to promise not to be disobedient before he lets her out of the salted hide of the horse or whatever. And all throughout Taming of the Shrew, you have this constant animal imagery and domestication imagery that's right below the surface most of the time, including the scene where Catherine's getting to Petruchio's other house and Grumio is talking about how the horse and Catherine, one of them has a bridle and it's not clear if it's Catherine or the horse. And so you can see these source materials sort of emerging from behind. And at the same time, Petruchio never hits Catherine physically in the course of the play. Petruchio hits a lot of people. Petruchio gets hit. <laughs> Catherine hits people. Catherine assaults people kind of all over the place. But he never hurts her. And so you have this question that's sort of looming about taming a shrew. What does it mean to do this and not include the easy physical violence that you could put in theater and that was really quite captivating, apparently, for audiences who loved when characters would beat each other up. Much like the Three Stooges kind of humor, audiences in this period, and for some time after, loved violent physical comedy. I should say that the Punch and Judy puppet theater was born in this era as well, though, of course, the thought of a man beating his wife for comedy is a bit horrifying today. And just because Petruchio never hits Catherine, this is not to say that he treats her like a perfect gentleman either. In fact, some of his actions are still quite troubling by today's standards. However, by the end of the play, the independent and headstrong Catherine finds a friend and partner in Petruchio. I, I don't know. I mean, parts of it are troubling. Yes, he starves her, and there are those very moving parts in the middle where... He promises her clothing, and she thinks, wow, I really want that dress, or I really want that hat, and he keeps showing her these things and then taking them away to the point where she wants to say, I want a dress like other women have. I want to be just like other women and not to be, you know, and so the idea is she wants to be normal. She wants to not be somebody who's standoffish. But that scene where they go back to their own house is amazing, right? You know, it is the sun, if I say it is the sun. And you can just see her saying, fine, it's more fun to play along than it is to resist. And if we could do this together, we could have a lot of fun. And that scene with Vincentio, who comes in and they make a big deal out of fair virgin, fair and fresh and sweet. You know, Vincentio is like, what are you talking about? And they both have so much fun in that scene, over the top that you start to see Shakespeare really playing with that notion that you can always tell when people are made for each other, when they spar verbally, the back and forth repartee that matches word for word, wit for wit, and sort of one-ups the other person that they have had going since they met, and at the same time being able to bring them together in speaking the same language and actually performing the same scenes with that kind of tacit understanding. It's just, you know, there's part of me that thinks that 
it's very much about how the most successful relationships are also the most successful drama and he's kind of thematizing that the whole way through as he does with this other you know Romeo and Juliet same thing and but figuring it out early on in his career with Catherine and Petruchio. This shift in Catherine and Petruchio's relationship from antagonists to lovers can even be seen in the name Petruchio uses for his new wife. And for Professor Ake, it's details like these that help the bard endure so well over time. The whole politics of naming that comes up in that play, where the first thing she says to him is, they call me Catherine, who do speak of me. He says, okay, Kate. <laughs> Kate, my dainty Kate, 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 my household Kate, blah, blah. So what does it mean to take away somebody's identity by changing their name? And then eventually at the end of the play, you can almost see him calling her Catherine at these moments where she's supposed to play along. It's almost like, okay, let's see Catherine now. And then Kate gets called out in these sort of public ways in the last scene of the play especially. And so it's like the public and private that starts to emerge in those two is sort of what happens in front of everybody and what happens behind the scenes we start to suspect are two different things and kind of fun. No one else in that play looks like they're going to have a really happy marriage. <laughs> but of course, the verbal sparring between a headstrong woman and an equally witty man before their eventual happy or tragic ending is not unique to The Taming of the Shrew. The title characters of Romeo and Juliet and Antony and Cleopatra and Benedict and Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing come to mind as well when we survey Shakespeare's works. The women in these couples battle it out with the men in these plays, unlike their more meek counterparts, like the chaste and quiet hero, Bianca, or Octavia. Even if they weren't idealized by the patriarchy, Professor Ake explains that these strong women would have been more interesting to audiences and to Shakespeare himself in a dramatic sense. I think about Antony and Cleopatra as a sort of grown-up rewriting of Romeo and Juliet. But one of the problems with Romeo and Juliet is, you know, once the comedy part ends, there's a sort of running gag in a lot of Shakespeare criticism that comedy is what happens before the marriage and tragedy is what happens afterwards. So once the comedy part of Romeo and Juliet stops, we don't really see them on stage together until one or the other is dead or thought to be dead. So there's this struggle about how to put lovers on stage in this sustained, equal, mature way. And I think that's one of the things that we still see with Antony and Cleopatra. You know, it's back and forth with one scene after another, Cleopatra, Cleopatra, Antony, Cleopatra. And when they're together, there's always this trying to figure out who's <laughs> running the scene, right? And Cleopatra would like to be running the scene most of the time and would like to be not just the object of the gaze, but also the director and the stage manager all at the same time. And that's a problem if you're Antony. But I think Shakespeare manages to thematize this a lot, but really not just automatically defer to the sort of typical patriarchal solution either. There's a lot of ways in which Juliet grows up faster than Romeo and seems to be a bit on the wiser side sooner. The women can really hold their own. In some ways, the perfect, the ideal relationship or marriage in a lot of these plays is one where men and women can speak together and they can think together and you see it and you feel it. 
So it's not the silent, chaste, and obedient woman that was supposedly the ideal of, of the period. It would make sense, of course, that Shakespeare would think that a silent, chaste, and obedient woman is probably the most boring theatrical character. That's why Octavia doesn't last very long, I think, and Antony and Cleopatra. She's perfect, but no fun to watch. And I think he thinks of the eroticism of the relationship and the ways that people interact in very theatrical terms, and that involves the sort of give and take of theater. So does writing these strong women make Shakespeare a relative feminist for his day? Professor Ake wouldn't go that far. Instead, Professor Ake argues that Shakespeare, over the course of his career, began to question and play with the trope of marriage in theater. He certainly doesn't treat all of his female characters the same. And I think there are these times when, especially if we look at the comedies, the later comedies, where clearly what's supposed to happen in comedy is it's supposed to end in marriage, right? And it's almost as if sometimes that Shakespeare's saying, okay, it's gonna end in marriage. It may not be one you like. And so I want you to think about that. The fact that there aren't these other alternatives for how to keep this comic. <laughs> and maybe it's at the end of Twelfth Night when I make that marriage really, really difficult. You're not gonna see it because Viola has to get out of her women's weeds for Orsino to marry her. But it turns out that Malvolio has the women's weeds in his boat or with someone else. And Malvolio is really angry at everybody and is likely not to come back anytime soon. And why did we need to do that, you know? So why did we need to not just make everybody happy and fine at the end and have their marriages? Same with Merchant of Venice. It's like Portia's an incredibly strong character, but how do we feel about that marriage to Bassanio? I don't know. It's not your conventional happy marriage fifth act either. In fact, ends on a kind of sexual innuendo that's kind of gross. So you get the sense that he's saying, okay, look, here's a structure. But that structure of heading on towards marriage with these strong women and these characters who are suitable for them in some way matched with them, this is a constraining kind of setup. And so it makes me think that he's not settling for the sort of one-size-fits-all version of relationship or character, and he's asking us to sort of question the systems that constrain them. Many thanks to Jamie Ake, an assistant dean and senior lecturer in women, gender, and sexuality studies, and the Interdisciplinary Project in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis. And thanks to you too for tuning in to Hold That Thought. Join me next week for the final episode of our Summer with the Bard. Have thoughts of your own after today's episode? Find Hold That Thought on Facebook or Twitter to join the conversation.